Welcome aboard the Coastal Connection. I'm Jennifer Ritter Guidry, your guide for this trip through Louisiana's coastal wetlands. Even these very simple, very pretty little flowers that no one seems to care too much about, they can do that. So we don't want to lose them. We want to have them beautify our landscape and enrich our lives. Louisiana iris is a name used worldwide for a special group of Louisiana native iris species, and particularly their hybrids. Although a number of iris species are native to Louisiana, only five species are known as the Louisianians. Those include Iris brevicollis, Iris fulva, Iris gigantis cerulea, Iris hexagona, and Iris nelsoni. Iris brevicollis and Iris fulva are native to the Mississippi Valley from Louisiana to Ohio, Iris gigantis cerulea and Iris hexagona are found along the Gulf Coast from Mississippi to Texas. Only here in South Louisiana, however, do all five species occur together. You can typically see them growing in damp or wet areas at the edge of swamps, in boggy areas, or along the roadside in the ditches. These five species are closely related and interbreed with one another, but no other species. The crossing or interbreeding of these species has resulted in the hybrid Louisiana iris cultivars that we know today. Their large, attractive flowers cover a wide range of colors, including many shades of blue, purple, red, yellow, pink, gold, brown, lavender, burgundy, and white. Cultivars with bicolor flowers, bright yellow signal markings, or ruffled petals add to their beauty. On today's episode, we visit with Paul Pastorek, an attorney, a former state administrator, and a passionate hunter of the Louisiana iris. So I'm Paul Pastorek. I have long been a lawyer in the city of New Orleans, grown up and lived here all my life. But of recent vintage, I am, have as an avocation playing with Louisiana irises and uh, growing and propagating and conserving those wild irises, uh, both in the wild and we actually have a conservation location in uh, the city of New Orleans. Well, you know, uh, as a lawyer, for many years, I used to drive back and forth to Baton Rouge, and one day I spied a red flower on the side of the interstate, and it was very bright and stark, and I had never seen anything like that. I had grown up with a fascination for plants from my mother. She liked native plants. So when I saw this plant, I zoomed by it. I came back a few days later because I had more business in Baton Rouge, and I decided I was going to grab it and dig it up and bring it home because I thought it was the coolest thing I ever saw. And I thought it was the only red plant like that that existed perhaps in the world. I thought it was, like, really special. And when I got home, I looked it up and found out that it was a Louisiana iris. And it wasn't so special. It was actually in a lot of different places. I had just never noticed it before. And I proceeded to not take care of it properly, and it died pretty quickly because I really didn't know how to, how to manage it. And so for years, I continued. I, I didn't take any more, but I continued to find them and I realized that they bloomed at a certain time of the year. They usually bloom right around now. We're here early first second week of March and uh, it blooms through about 
the first week in April. And I began each year to look for them as I was driving around. And I found more and more and more. And uh, it was just amazing. And I thought it was the prettiest thing that I had ever seen. Kind of strange for a lawyer to be so interested in that, but I was. So I began to study, what is this plant? Is it threatened, endangered? Is it happy? It's in a ditch. Is that a good place for it? Is that where it originally began? And so I'm very inquisitive about plants and, and how they got here and what they're doing. But in the last five years, I developed a very deep interest in it. Um, it's when I came across some people who actually know something about this, this plant. And I learned about a particular red iris called the Iris Nelsonii, also known as the Abbeville Red. When I did learn about this, I learned it was only located near the city of Abbeville. One day, about five years ago, I came over at the appropriate time of year and went to Palmetto Island State Park, where there's an exhibition of them. And I have to tell you, it it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it, because the setting of that iris uh, display is unbelievably beautiful in the first week of April. It's in a cypress swamp. And um, there were probably 500 or 600 of these red irises. And they're actually different than the one I had seen on the highway. The first one you discovered that caught your eye was the same rare Abbeville red. Yeah, it was not. It, it is an iris called the iris fulva, which is actually a brick red and sometimes an orange red. But this display that I saw in uh, Palmetto Island State Park was a deep, dark red that was just so striking. And when you have several hundred of these flowers blooming, it, it, it'll blow you away. And when I saw that, I began to do some research. What was this plant? There's, there's actually quite a bit of explanation in Palmetto Island, but I found a guy who actually knew something about this plant. He had a special knowledge, and he happened to belong to the Greater New Orleans Iris Society. I didn't know about the society, but then I went to a meeting. I found out that there were about a dozen people who really understood how Louisiana irises in the wild work, where they are, what colors there are, and so forth. And I learned that a number of people had been collecting these irises that they see in the wild, and they were collecting them so they could preserve them. And uh, they actually began a program to take all of these collected irises and put them in a common location in City Park in New Orleans. And if you go to City Park today, you'll see about 150 different Louisiana irises that have different color shadings and different heights and so on and so forth. They're all of the five Louisiana iris species, but they're different forms and colors. And they're all on that island. And they're all in a place to be protected. And they're designed to be able to replace ones that are missing in the, um, in the, in the wild. Okay, so let's talk about some iris basics. Yeah. Can you name all five native Louisiana iris species? I can. Okay. I can. So there's Iris gigantis cerulea, 
which is the largest, the tallest. It's the blue flag iris. It actually has a variation in color. We normally see it as blue, but you can actually see it all the way to light blue and even white, all the way to dark purple. But usually what you'll see is is a light purplish blue flower. But if you go to the island in City Park, we have specimens that are about 10 different color variations off of the main. So that's Iris giganticerulea. Then there's Iris nelsonii, which is very, very limited location. The only place you'll find that is in the Abbeville area. And uh, that one's a dark red. It's tall. It's almost as tall as giganticerulea, but not quite. Uh, Then there's Iris fulva, which is the brick red. And sometimes complete yellow flower. I actually found a yellow flower this past weekend, which is very, very rare. I only know of two other yellow flowers in the state. And that iris fulva, mostly brick red, is the one you typically see in ditches. That's the most common one out there. And you can see it on either side of the Mississippi River. It actually has a range all the way up to Illinois. And we actually have some Illinois, some Arkansas-collected plants that are in our preservation uh, program. Then there's the Brevicalis. Brevicalis is a blue. It's a much shorter plant. Uh, In fact, the leaves are short, and the flower is sometimes even shorter than the leaves. And it's called the zigzag plant because the flower stalk is usually on a nice zigzag. And sometimes those are crossed with other beautiful flowers to be able to get the zigzag so it displays the flowers better. This is where humans like to get into the act, you know. Well, the Brevicalis generally grows on uh, farms, on cattle farms, because they grow in fields and they grow in little swales in fields. They don't like as much water as the Giganticerulea, which grow all along the coast in the swamp and the marsh. They really like occasional water. So you'll find the Brevicalis more up north than, and it's the northernmost Louisiana in Louisiana flower, except for the fulva, which goes up the Mississippi River. And then the fifth one is the Iris virginica. And the virginica is a different plant altogether. It's native to Louisiana. It's not a true Louisiana iris, so people quibble and debate about that one. But the the virginica is an interesting flower because it has what's called a mid-rib in the leaf. And when you feel the leaf, you can feel this hard, it's, it's almost like a rod in the leaf, like a round rod. And when you feel it, you can feel a, the, that midrib. Now, there's one iris that I want to tell you about that is not a Louisiana iris. And people who love Louisiana iris hate this particular iris. This is called the iris pseudochorus. And it's a yellow iris. And it's uh, it doesn't the flower doesn't look at all like a yellow like a Louisiana. It's a squiggly armed. It's very squiggly. Just think of squiggly. If you see an iris that looks squiggly, that's and it's yellow. That's a pseudochorus. Stomp it out. Pull it out of the ground. Burn it down. It's terrible. No, I'm exaggerating a little bit. In truth, it's an exotic. 
And the reason why Louisiana iris lovers don't like it is they crowd out. They're extremely invasive. They will crowd out any plant, including Louisiana iris. So we tend not to like it. And actually in ULL Cypress Lake, there are quite a few of the Louisiana iris pseudochorus. And we've suggested that they put true Louisiana iris in, in the lake. And in fact, recently I helped plant uh, some iris nelsonii in there. Uh, It's the first time iris nelsonii have been back in the Cypress Lake in about 30 years. So we're real excited about that. We're going to be planting a lot more of these red irises. The ones, like I mentioned, were in Palmetto Park. We want to see a big, big, big display of those nelsonii, especially since Dr. Nelson worked at ULL, and the flowers are named for him and their native plants to this area. The beauty of this preservation program was on full display when we were given a rare yellow Nelsonii. Most Nelsonii's are like the ones that I described in the display at Palmetto Island, that dark red. But there is a rare yellow Abbeville flower in the same shape as a Nelsonii, but it's yellow instead of red. And this yellow one was growing in in the wild where only Abbeville reds and yellows grow, but it was accidentally destroyed by the landowner there who had herbicided it. We had been given a piece of that by the, by the wildlife and fisheries for our preservation program. Well, when the farmer herbicided the yellow one in the wild, the wildlife and fisheries asked us if we would replenish that. So we were able to give them five plants for the one they gave us. We actually still have 10, but we gave them five plants. The wildlife and fisheries gave it back to the landowner, and the landowner was able to put it back in the wild location and hopefully this time not herbicide again. Probably knows a little bit more this time around. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Uh, For the last five years, I I rent a cabin at the park and uh, I bring my kayak and uh, and I'm very interested in documenting how many plants are in the wild. And I'm not interested in collecting them so much as I'm interested in documenting them. I go out in my kayak and I kayak the waterways around this area where the Nelsonii are located. I've got a telephoto lens and I've got, you know, a geocoded Uh, process that I use and I can geolocate the irises. Many are in the in the waterway and uh, some are up on the banks. You can see them in the distance. For the last five years I've been documenting the location and the color and the form and over the years people have collected these and so most of the different forms that I see in the wild we have on the island uh, in our preservation program. And in fact the landowners will allow us to come in and look and see what's going on and, and collect if we find something that's particularly rare. It's a lot of fun. 
I, I spend usually five or six days hunting for uh, for these iris, and uh, and I've been able to document not only that there are ones out there, but what their features look like, how they're different. Some come and go. Uh, we are working on a project, the Iris Society is working on a project to document where irises are found in the wild. And we have a software program, it's an app that you can just publicly available that we encourage people to use to go out when they see in the wild, like I saw that iris fulva sitting on the interstate near Baton Rouge one day, instead of taking it, document it. And, um, and then we can see what the population does. Not only do I spend a week uh, each year looking around in that Abbeville area south of the Nelsonii location, all around in that area, I look I I actually, this year, this past year, I went to the Gulf of Mexico, went all the way to Lake Charles and looked for the irises out there. This past weekend, I was over in White Castle and Donaldsonville and looking at the irises there because they're starting to bloom now. So I, I spend time in Abbeville, but I, I actually travel up and around and I document the locations of these. And we're collecting all of these locations to be able to say over five five-year period, a 10-year period, what has been the growth, expansion, or contraction and death of, of irises in the wild. The Greater New Orleans Iris Society, Louisiana Iris Location Citizen Science Project involves a few steps to record and document. Step one, download the Rambler app. Step two, create a user ID and password. Step three, make sure you've got the app on when you're in search of irises. Step four, make sure to measure any irises you discover. You can measure it with a wooden ruler or a tape measure. Take photos in the app, preferably three when possible. Photo number one of the entire iris in a side view from the ground up. Photo number two, a close-up of the flower from the top. And photo number three, a close-up of the flower from the side. And finally, you can record your observations in the Rambler app if you have time and the inclination. In Jean Lafitte Park, 30 years ago, you had acres and acres of blue giganocerulea, but today there's almost nothing. So one of the things that we're doing with these very special irises that we've collected is we're trying to introduce them back into their native environments. And so in addition to our preservation program where we preserve rare irises, we also take irises and put them back into the landscape where they were. So before the salt was in, you know, brought in by the storms, uh, we have to wait for that salt to wash out, and then we can go back and put them in. So we've discovered some stands of, for example, Giganocerulea, uh, one very large stand in St. James Parish, and we've gotten permission from the landowner. They're going to convert it to industrial use. So we've gotten permission from the landowner to pull all of that iris out, and now we're using it to put into the Jean Lafitte area in the Bayou Sauvage area in New Orleans East and the Joyce Wildlife Management area in the Manshack Lake Manshack area. And we're looking to bring that west as well. And we're actually looking to grow interest in the iris again in the southwest Louisiana area. 
So we're doing a lot of work now with University of Louisiana at Lafayette. We're doing uh, some bioswales that we're populating with Louisiana iris. They have some uh, capabilities of actually cleaning the water, the subsurface water that comes in and uh, water runoff and this sort of thing. Uh, So we're taking some of these irises that we're relocating from the wild and we're putting them back in the wild but in some cases we're putting them in to areas like ULL where people can appreciate them and understand their value in the landscape both in the residential and you know developed landscape but also in the landscape of the wild. So these are the bioswales that they've installed throughout campus that you're referring to? Yep. Oh wow okay yeah they're those are such wonderful living laboratories. We've got a memorandum of understanding with Nichols um and Nichols is taking some of those irises that we pulled out of that industrial development where they were in the wild, but they were going to be run over and bulldozed. And we've moved a number of them to Nichols and Nichols is growing them like in an agricultural field. And we're actually talking to ULL about doing the same thing. They have a plot of land and we want to grow the Nelsonii here and we want to grow the Giganocerulea, the blue flowers over in uh, over at Nichols. So um, if we can grow these and harvest them and then put them into the wild and they're pure plants, we're not interested in the fancy colored, frilly Louisiana irises, which are very beautiful, but we're interested in the original plants that were in the wild and putting those original plants as they've multiplied in, in uh, at Nichols State and, uh, and hopefully at ULL and then putting those original plants back into the wild. We're working with wildlife and fisheries, and, uh, and, and they recognize us as a true preservation activity. We have very strict rules about whether we take plants from the wild, how we take plants, and what we do with plants. And, and they recognize that. Um, we try not to take plants at all, to be honest with you. But, uh, uh, but where something is particularly rare, we may take a very small part to put it in the preservation program. But we always want to leave the bulk of the plant there in the wild so that it is able to, to restore itself. And, uh, and then our hope truly is, and I, I actually uh, am, a, am a big proponent, of wherever we take something, we're going to return a multiple number back at a point in time. And actually, believe it or not, long ago and far away, I did some alligator hunting and worked with the alligator hunters who did the hunting. And, you know, the program is set up where if you kill alligators, you have to return a number of alligators to the swamp. When you take alligator eggs, you have to return a percentage. And uh, it's the same way that we look at it. If you take anything, we have to return within a period of years a number of plants so that we can restore that diversity back to the location. We've taken the irises that are on the island in the preservation program and we've created a steward program. We want to get those irises not just in one location, because if we get a wipeout, we actually had a flood from Katrina in City Park, which killed a lot of irises pre-Katrina, but they didn't include these particular rare ones. Those were still in people's yards. So what we're doing is I take 
a handful of those irises, and I've now grown them out, and I probably have 500 of these rare irises in my yard, and they're all kinds of different. They're Brevicalis, they're Virginica, and so on and so forth. But I have a little oasis of these rare ones, and we have about 10 stewards around the country, actually, who keep sometimes the entire collection of 150 irises. I, I don't have enough room for that. But um, but yeah, we have, uh, so I have quite a bit. I have my own little lagoon in my yard, and uh, which I created especially for this. I like to have them in pots and in standing water, although some of them don't do well in that. So I have them in, a couple of them I have in a different environment. But you can, you know, irises are really easy to grow. You can grow them in your garden. You can grow them in a raised bed. You can grow them on the water's edge. If you grow them in water, which is their natural stance, then they'll be green all year round. If you grow them in a garden or a bed, you have to water them in the summer because they do go dormant. If they're dormant and dry, their leaves will actually yellow and you can hit them with a weed eater and just cut them to the ground. And then they'll come back in the winter. And and irises are interesting because they start their growth spurt in August and they actually grow during the winter. So their their leaves can be green, but they're kind of weak in the summer. But in the winter, they get beautiful. They are really a beautiful garden plant for their green leaves. And then they bloom in mid-March to early April, mid-April. Tell us a little bit about the Greater New Orleans Iris Society and mm-hmm. how people, listeners, can potentially get involved with the work you guys are doing. Yeah, the, the Iris Society uh, is one of two societies in Louisiana. The Greater New Orleans Iris Society is based in New Orleans, and almost all of its members are from New Orleans. There are probably 75 members uh, in the Iris Society. About five or six of them are avid hybridizers. The rest are just gardeners, and a lot of people just come because they're interested and participate because they're interested. And then another five or six are people like me who like to go find them in the wild and look for things that are unusual and rare. We're on the web, Greater New Orleans Iris Society. Uh, We're a nonprofit organization. We apply for and get grants, and we've actually really upgraded our facility. And there's another organization. It's called the Society for Louisiana Irises. This is actually based in Lafayette, and it is part of the organization that was begun in the 40s by Ira Nelson and uh, Mr. McMillan, famous uh, hybridizer and avid uh, Irish lover. Uh, And SLI, it's known as, still exists. I'm actually on the board of the Greater New Orleans Irish Society and on the board of SLI. SLI attracts members from all over the country. Believe it or not, we have board members and members in New York State, And they grow Louisiana irises in New York State. Yes, they do. Uh, And they grow them in New Zealand. We actually have a few members from New Zealand. But SLI is uh, really the opportunity for local people in Lafayette area and southwest Louisiana to be members. They can be found on the web on a uh, under Society for Louisiana Irises. The website name is actually different, but if you Google it, that's what you'll get, Society for Louisiana Irises. The memberships are ridiculously 
inexpensive. I think it's 10 bucks a year for both of the memberships. Both are in league together on the preservation and conservation program. Both have members who are interested in hybridization. Society for Louisiana irises do as well. And in two years, we're planning on having the convention for the Society for Louisiana irises. We join with the Greater New Orleans Iris Society. It'll be, and for the first time in many, many years, it'll be back on the ULL campus. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Nelsonia, um, and for lots of different reasons. It, it seems to have a genetic makeup that contributes to the hybridization of Louisiana irises and brings out a lot of color in the hybrids that it's crossed with. So you don't think about things like genetic diversity, typically when you go look at plants and flowers. But I think about genetic diversity, and um, it seems as though the Nelsonii contributes greatly to the genetic diversity among the five different species. And I like it. I like its habit. I like its form. I like its color. It, it, it does some other interesting things. It tends to bloom more flowers. The flowers tend to be bigger. The flowers can be bigger than my hand. The fulva flowers are probably as big as half my palm. Gigantus cerulea can get as big as your hand, but the Nelsonii can get very big. They're very, very interesting plants, so I like those the best. So I would, first of all, urge them to, when they see irises, in the roadways and in the swamps and marshes if they get close enough to them to take a picture of them and to send it our way and find out if it's rare or not rare. I would encourage people not to take irises out of the marsh. And the good news is if you want some of these wild irises, we're, we've propagated enough now that we're able to start selling them. So we're encouraging people not to take them out of the wild. We have this collection and we'll sell them for, again, ridiculously cheap prices so that people can propagate them, so we can keep them in the wild. But if they see something that's particularly unusual, likewise let us know, because we may have it in our collection, or if not, then we would like to carefully remove a piece of that to put it in the collection and at the same time protect the continuing plant uh, would continue to grow in the wild. And then I think if people really want to learn more about it and actually become a steward or 
you know, get their hands dirty and come play with these irises on the island, uh, join the Greater New Orleans Iris Society and, and the Society for Louisiana Irises. To be honest with you, I was clumsy, ignorant, and didn't behave well with irises in the wild. You know, when I was young and didn't really understand what was going on, now I understand. And it was because I learned from a lot of people, and these people were all in the iris society. Most were. I've learned from some other people too, but it's a great place to start. And it's a great way to get irises. So another one of the things that we do at SLI meetings or at Greater New Orleans Iris Society meetings. We give away irises. I guarantee you, if you come to a GNOIS meeting, Greater New Orleans Iris Society meeting, which we hold every two uh, months, um, and it's posted on the website, I guarantee you, if you come to six meetings a year, which we have, you'll walk out with six irises a year. I promise you. That's uh, that's what we do. We raffle them off. And if you tell somebody you really want something, they'll go in their backyard and get it for you and give it to you. So I would also observe that in the long term, if we're able to grow out a lot of irises at Nickel State, if we're able to grow out a lot of irises at ULL, their experimental agricultural fields, we can take these and begin to really put them in in an industrial way through the Quipper program because Quipra does do restoration projects or funds restoration projects. And, you know, one thing that I've learned about the program is when someone damages a wetlands, they have to replace it. Or when someone wants to develop a wetlands and they're given permission to do it, they have to replace it with other wetlands and create other wetlands. And usually when you go in to create these wetlands, you need wetlands plants. And so we're hoping with Gigantocerulea, which is a more of a shoreline plant, we can use that in the Quipper program in certain areas. And where you have inland water areas, we could take the Nelsonii or the Fulva eventually and that sort of thing. So I would really hope that we're not just a group of people who are selfishly taking plants and hoarding them in our backyard only to find that when we pass away, the plants just die in our yard. That's not what we want to do. We want to not only preserve these plants and make sure that if they're ever lost in the wild, there'll be an alternate gene <laughs> uh, collection that can be reclaimed, but also we want to uh, return these plants to the wild in different ways, in different places, and make up for man-made loss or make up for nature-made loss. We can only do that kind of thing if we go to scale. And we've been thinking a lot about how do we go to scale, and that's one of the reasons why we're very excited about the Nickel State Partnership and about the prospect of a ULL partnership. Because if we could go to scale, this is our dream, it's a crazy dream, that the iris fields could become as big as they were when J.K. Small saw what he described in 1932 as iris heaven. The irises were as far as the eye could see on the train that he rode on past the city of New Orleans, all the way to Lake Pontchartrain and all the way to the back of the city. At that time, it was all swamp and marsh. 
through what now is Gentilly and Lakeview and all of that area, Metairie, all of that was was irises. And while we're not going to populate those parts of the city with irises again, there are plenty of wetlands that we could create acres and acres and acres of beautiful irises. And it's crazy. It's a big idea. But if we work in concert with the state agencies, wildlife and fisheries, the federal agencies, if we work with the contractors who are installing these remedial wetlands areas, and if we work with the universities that uh, can partner with us to help propagate these and study and research these plants, because we still don't know enough about them, then we could actually take these remnant populations, these very small populations, these little roads roadside patches. That's all we have right now in Louisiana. If we could take these roadside patches and turn them into big populations of irises, I think it would be good not only for our emotional constitution, but our physical landscape constitution. And that's it for us today on the Coastal Connection. In these uncertain times, Go outside, enjoy the fresh air, soak up the vitamin D, and be on the lookout for the native Louisiana irises in your surroundings. This podcast is brought to you by the Coastal Wetlands Planning, Protection, and Restoration Act, The QIPRA program is a federal legislation program enacted in 1990 designed to identify, prepare, and fund construction of coastal wetlands restoration projects. Since its inception, over 200 coastal restoration or protection projects have been authorized. For more information about the QIPRA program, find us online at lacoast.gov, become our friend on Facebook, or follow along in our Instagram adventures at quipra underscore outreach. We want to know what you're thinking. What are your questions and concerns about the coastal wetlands of Louisiana? Drop us a line on social media or email us directly at cwppra at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of IPF Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its board of directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.